Donald, I need to come back to the topic we've been all screaming about here, which is Scalia. Was he murdered? What do you think of that? It's a horrible topic, but they say they found a pillow on his face, which is a pretty unusual place to find a pillow. His grandmother in Kenya said he was born in Kenya and she was there and witnessed the birth. That's something that really only comes from the, the coop part of America. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who demands a public thank you for private diplomacy, Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg, and I'm talking about those three UCLA basketball players who are arrested on a team trip to China. Trump says he got Chinese President Xi Jinping to let them go. Like so many of the quarrels Trump chooses to pick, this one just seems implicitly racial. The three teenagers, accused of shoplifting sunglasses, are black. Trump is acting the role of their rich, white benefactor. He wants these boys to bow and scrape, acknowledging his mercy and help. It's reminiscent of his fight with the NFL players. Shouldn't these well-paid sports celebrities be more grateful to the white fans who provide so generously for them? Trump knows he never loses a fight that summons white resentment against privileged black athletes. What's new with this one is how casually Trump undermined American foreign policy in the service of his racial demagoguery. China purports to be a country governed by the rule of law, not one where the president decides who stays in jail and who gets to go free. Of course, it's not. But in calling out the UCLA players, Trump caused a national embarrassment for Xi, who assumed that he was settling the matter privately, as he would have been with any other U.S. or world leader. A Chinese president also doesn't want to be seen taking instructions from an American president. There's that whole thing about face over there. Ordinary American leaders look at China and say that country lacks the proper rule of law. Trump looks at China and says, I lack the power to ignore the rule of law the way she does. But at least for a day, he can play emperor and set a few people free. On today's show, Kevin Young, who studied the 200-year backstory of fake news. My guest today is the poet and author Kevin Young. He's the poetry editor of The New Yorker. He is the director of the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture in Harlem. And he is the author of a new book called Bunk, which is the rise of hoaxes, humbug, plagiarists, phonies, post-facts, and fake news. Great title, great book. Kevin, thanks for joining me on the show today. Thanks for having me. So you kind of start with, I don't know, fake news 200 years ago. <laughs> you look at uh, the the kind of hoax that was prevalent in the yellow press and the tabloid press that got started in New York in the Jacksonian era. What's that, How does that compare to, to the kind of fake news that we're talking about in the Trump era? Well, yeah, that's uh, the 1830s is the advent of the penny press. And um, they're a fascinating sort of form because Newspapers used to be a nickel, and um, this was really an attempt to kind of have almost like a broadside, and they almost had that broadside approach of, when people say being broadsided, it's almost like what the penny press did, and they were an idea of the common man or a common person, though often a man, and they often uh, contain these hoaxes, these things that were clearly fake. But at the same time, we're often believed. And I think what's interesting about them is the way that they were used hoaxes to become super popular. And they went from, you know, no circulation to just tens and thousands being sold. Um, and one of the first important aspects of that was a hoax called the moon hoax. 
committed by a reporter, an editor for the paper. This so, is the New York Sun. I mean, this is a famous episode in yeah. the history of journalism where they claim that, that, that through a telescope, an astronomer somewhere in South Africa or Australia or something saw a little Africa, man yeah. on the moon, right? Yeah, he saw, you know, man bats and biped beavers. Those are my favorite. <laughs> um, and, you know, quickly, they were so graphic and smart. And I think the thing that made that hoax so convincing is it was very scientific-seeming. It didn't rush to get us to the man bats. It's just day by day unfolding. And uh, I think it really sutured us into this idea that I think hoaxes still use, which is I'm going to give you a little bit of what seems like facts, and then I'm going to give you a lot of uh, bunk. So if you take that and compare it to a lot of what we've been talking about now, that seems like a primarily commercial hoax. They were fooling people uh, to the extent they were fooling people to provide entertainment and sell papers uh, as opposed to, you know, sway an election. Well, I think what's interesting is when you step back, it's not really clear why that hoax both happened and why it was so successful. Um, I have thoughts and, and some of it, I think, has to do with kind of its displaced nature. It's displacing some of the questions and arguments of the day. Like, you know, who is a citizen? Who is a person? What does it mean to be here in New York, uh, but also sort of a person in the world? And I think that those kind of questions get displaced to the moon. And, you know, you have people <laughs> saying things like, well, let's send Bibles to the man bats on the moon. Uh, how are we going to get them there? Or, you know, people sort of see it as providential and somehow a part of God's plan instead of sort of saying disrupting um, originating stories, it really kind of, people saw in the moon hoax what they wanted, either a justification for slavery or, or an anti-slavery sort of tract. And so it's a complicated hoax, even though it's largely fantasy. And what I think is fascinating is that some people point to it as the start of science fiction in general. Uh, and I sort of point to it as something I like to call science faction. You know, it's kind of part fiction and part fact that we now see all the time. And so it really is analogous in some ways to the fake news of today. Yeah. Hadn't Mary Shelley already invented science fiction uh, because Frankenstein (laughs) had been published before that? Yeah. Uh, But that's that's sort of a highly metaphorical – I mean, I think your read on that is super interesting and the racial dimension against the backdrop of riots around uh, abolition and what was happening in the North in relation to slavery – but that's you know that's uh, that's a read that's a kind of literary uh, metaphorical read on it as opposed to a hoax that is Hillary Clinton is was been denounced by the Pope or you know as opposed right, right. to just purely fraudulent news with an ideological purpose. Do we have what kind of precedent did you find for that going through this history? Well, right around the same time as the moon hoax, uh, P. T. Barnum exhibited Joyce Heff, who was a black woman. Um, who he probably enslaved. She had been uh, enslaved before. And he claimed that she was 161 years old and the nursemaid of George Washington. This was really appealing to people. They wanted to connect to the father of our nation. And they went and saw her in droves. And it became Barnum's first calling card, his first big show and exhibition. Uh, and he turned her around, she got sick, and she died. And then he, uh, she was not 161, but he rented a medical theater and had people pay to dissect her. I mean, people paid to watch 
the dissection of her, her being to examine whether or not she was 161, which he, of course, well knew she wasn't. And that really troubling kind of medical theater, the audience for the dissection of the body of this black woman who was probably enslaved um, and had been, who was Barnum's property, his, his calling card, was really kind of a troubling one. Um, a fascinating sort of connection is the person allowed to report on that was the author of the moon hoax. Um, so huh, there was same, a, same reporter. Yeah, yeah. Locke is his name. I mean, you trace this history of journalistic hoaxes. A lot of a, a big part of the book is about the much more recent ones. You know, the uh, the Stephen Glass, the Jason Blair, some sure. that have been uh, a little more forgotten or overwhelmed by the by the more famous ones, but. You know, again, in this sort of era when the president is making fake accusations of fake news, what do you learn by looking at real episodes of fake news? Or I just prefer the term fraudulent news because I think <laughs> fake is, you know, he sort of ruined that term for us. Yeah, we we almost have. You're right. I mean, I say in the book that I like fake news better when it was just called propaganda. You know, I mean, there was at least a kind of honesty about both the putting out of false information, disinformation. Um, and then there's now, as you point out, an accusation of fake news. Fake news becomes news I don't like. Um, and so that troubling mix is something I try to sort out over the past couple centuries. And you definitely can see the kind of precedence because Barnum himself would, you, you know, he w- knew that she wasn't 161, but he made the discussion, the questioning part of the process and I think he offered his audience a kind of democratic notion of, you know, oh, is this real or not? And what I say in the book is that um, Barnum offered that anyone could be an expert, that you yourself could decide for yourself. And I think in this current era, there are no experts. We're in this weird time when you know, Barnum would at least make up a fake doctor. Now it's like doctors shouldn't be believed just because, you know, I'm a smart guy. I think they are, you know, not so smart about, you know, it seems hot out here to me. Why are people saying climate is changing or it got cold yesterday? Therefore, things are different than the scientists or doctors or experts say. You have a great line in your book. You say the best way to concoct a hoax is to claim you've spotted one. <laughs> right. Who are you thinking? Who are you thinking of there? <laughs> I mean, I think there's lots of examples. And, you know, I think that birtherism is one example uh, of a kind of, oh, I spotted this fake out there. And it's very hard to disprove if you then re- say everything is fake. And I think that's the really difficult thing about the time that is slightly different, I think, than the penny press. Um, I do think the penny press, though, has the most relationship to the Internet um, and this Internet kind of quality of the penny press where it's offering like, you know, a similarly democratic notion of, you know, we too can get access to information and information we particularly like and favor. I think that's has happened to us and is is one of the many reasons why there's more hoaxes now than ever. And also the the sort of entertainment purpose, right, mixed in with the other purposes and subtexts. I mean, it's, you know, it it also is of course in, you know, our own, own time the kind of tabloid newspapers like the National Enquirer and Star and Globe with these fantastical stories and, you know, people like me always say, "Oh, you know, these are do people believe these outrageous made-up fantasies about UFOs or whatever. But 
there it's sort of the question of whether people believe them isn't the isn't the big issue from the people purveying them they're creating popular a form of popular entertainment well and i would i would say that um you know we all have to think about our roles as audience and it's something that i do in the book um because i'm really interested in how bunk sort of works not just sort of why people make things up or deceive but why we believe things and, you know, what is the need that the moon hoax supplied and what is the need that, say, Pizzagate supplied? And I think some of it is the switch in the hoax for me. And the hoax in my book, I trace how it changed over time. And it used to be, you know, some, both Barnum's hoax and the moon hoax. So there's kind of something honorific about it. It's saying, look at this fantastic world that we're in and that, um, you too can visit or uh, see or I can tell you about. And now it's like, look at the horrible things that are going on. That's very much the horror has sort of come to dominate the hoax. And I trace why we got to this point where, you know, if you said everything was great, I'm not sure people would believe you as much. <laughs> but if you say everything is horrible and it's as bad as you think, we start to believe it. Yeah, we uh, we recently had on the show Kurt Anderson, who has this new book Fantasyland that, that mm-hmm. goes through you know a lot of the, a lot of the same history you do. He has a, a somewhat different thesis. I mean, he argues first of all this is just like an American thing. Americans love BS. You know, they have this kind of mm-hmm. strange you know attenuated relationship with reality where they love to believe that we're just like a credulous people. Do you do you agree with that? And what's your how is your take different from his? Well, I do think there is an American quality to the hoax, um, but I don't think it's because we're credulous. Um, I think there is a notion of reinvention that's at the heart of American identity, and some of that the hoaxer plays on. After all, the con artistry, at least the term, is an American phenomenon. But at the same time, the thing that I came to understand as I was reading about these hoaxes is even ones like the moon hoax or uh, ones that seem far from us, they are often about race. And that race often is turned to by the hoaxer as a way to kind of get us to believe it. So I think the hoax always makes use of these big, deep divisions in our society. And you see that across different societies, not just America. But here, and I started to trace in the book, the ways that the hoax makes use of race. And then by the end, I came to see the ways that race makes use of hoaxes. Um, And that race itself is this fake thing. It's not biologically true or or provable or, you know, uh, actual um, that is pretending to be real. That doesn't mean it doesn't have real consequences. And I think that that in many ways is the the dilemma we've gotten into about both the misunderstanding of what the hoax is really up to. And I think I see, I see a lot of people write about the hoax like it's this blurry line between fact and fiction. And I don't think that's what's at work. You know, I think this deeper concern with race and troubling aspect of it is really important to keep in mind. So is that something that's just a, a, a continuity for 200 years? I mean, from the men, the man in the moon or the men in the moon in the New York sun to birtherism, you know, these hoaxes get purchased in a way because of their, their clear, if never quite stated, racial dimension. I think it often is the case. Um, you know, I think when Susan Smith, uh, the woman who killed her children, and we might remember in the back of her car, you know, tried to find a suspect. 
in her mind, she turned to, you know, a black, invented black man when they created a fake um, pamphlet to try to sway the election in the 1860s. They called it miscegenation and said that it was about race mixing and made up this whole sort of tract. These things continue. And we see that in different ways today. It can be hard to see, but once you start to trace, say, the fake Native Americans that are seem rampant, you start to really think about, well, how does this connect to the American love of masks and reinvention? How does it connect to the Boston Tea Party? And, you know, I start to think about the ways that this pretending and fakery and ultimately hoaxing in American life does center around questions of race. What did you make of uh, Rachel Dalzell, the, the white woman who did, d- decided that her identity was black? Uh, yes, Rachel. Um, I was almost done with the book, and I say this in, in the chapter on her, when that popped up, and I thought, oh, I, do I have to write about it? You know, um, But I'm really <laughs> glad I did, because it started me... I know that feeling. <laughs> <laughs> it started me realizing that, you know, there was something at work here, not just, you know, because she didn't just say like, gosh, I feel black. She painted her skin. You know, she changed her appearance in order to have other people perceive her differently. I mean, there's a ho- element of hoax and imposture there. But I also think the misunderstanding she has about blackness is one that not coincidentally, a week later, the Charleston killer had. You know, Charleston happened a week later, and I started to think these two things are related. They both misunderstand blackness and and reduce it to trauma, to pain. And, you know, one sort of wants to join that and one wants to, you know, eliminate that horribly. But I, I think that misperception is the one that we have to think about, you know, why can't a black person be a person? Why can't you be in love with black culture, as many are, and not have to change your your skin um, or pretend to be something you're not? And it also goes to this notion of, you know, black people are just miscolored white people (laughs) that I think, you know, has long been standing in, in blackface, which not coincidentally grows up at the same time as Barnum and the Penny Papers, you know, um, that American, most American form of entertainment, blackface, is very tied to this moment as well. At the same time, there's the book Black Like Me by John Howard Griffin, where, you know, he was, it was a hoax in that he was fooling white people and black people into thinking he was black, but for the purpose of trying to understand from a white perspective, what it might be like. Well, does he fool black people? I always wonder about that. Like, if if he came walking down the street, I'd be like, there's a dude painted up. <laughs> With sh- uh, shoe polish know, like, on he, his we face. We only have his sort of version of, you know, what it meant. Um, right. <laughs> they just didn't say anything. They were... <laughs> right. say, like, you know, okay, sure. You know, sometimes this happens. Um, the other thing is, I think, in the Rachel Dolezal case, well, I talk about it in terms of Charleston. Um, I also think there's a bit of absurdity that can lead to some humor. And the hoax sometimes makes use of that. And, you know, so the book isn't just a, a look at sort of the horrors of the hoax. It's also, you know, thinking about how the hoax used to be humorous and now is less so, but that all of them have this kind of, there's, it can be fun at least to, to think about them together and, and the lengths to which people go to both deceive us and also that we go to believe them. I've been speaking to the author and poet Kevin Young. His new book out this week is Bunk. Kevin, thanks for joining me on the show. Thanks for having me. 
That's it for today's show. Hey, thanks to everybody who came to our live show in San Francisco. That was fun, right? We had a great time. What else is coming up? Well, over Thanksgiving, we're going to have our next edition of the Trumpcast Book Club. The book is Night Rider by Robert Penn Warren. It's going to be a really interesting discussion, and you can expect that show on Friday after Thanksgiving. If you're hanging around, having eaten too much, sick of the relatives, listen to us talk about that really interesting novel. And I want to announce our December book for the book club. It's Submission by Michelle Welbeck, the French writer Michelle Welbeck. That last name is spelled, all right, I'm going to try to do this from memory, H-O-U-E-L-L-E. B-E-C-Q. Ooh, is that hard to spell? It's pronounced Welbeck, or so I'm told. I barely know any French. Uh, It's another really interesting novel, and that will be our next selection in the Trumpcast Book Club. Today's show is produced by Jason DeLeon. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Trumpcast.